You trip and fall on your way to give a talk in front of an audience. Oh, the emotions that are about to ensue. Let's get into the neuroscience of that, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 134, where I aim to arm us with some scientific evidence to help us all be a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you feeling today? Thank you for letting me be a part of your day today. If you are Canadian or living in Canada, then happy Thanksgiving. I know my family is celebrating up in Winnipeg this weekend. So I am taking this moment to say thank you for listening. I'm thankful for all of you tuning in and for bringing me into your day. Now, what did you all think of the last episode, episode 133, where I shared my theory on modern motivation? It seemed to have a lot of people thinking and becoming introspective about that thought, and I like that. For today's episode, I wanted to do somewhat of a fun topic, and that is the neuroscience of embarrassment. It is one of those complex social emotions that we don't know entirely, or don't understand it entirely, but scientists have worked hard in the last few decades to gain some insight into why and how we feel embarrassed. And I think you will enjoy this interesting episode. I will fill it with lots of stories, relatable questions, and some empirical neuroscience. But before we get into today's episode, as we always do, let's start off with a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. All the way back on July 21st, the year 1900, published in Scientific American, three physicians, Dr. Sipelier, Thebalt and Broca claimed to have created an anti-alcohol serum. What they did was they gave a horse alcohol to drink, and they also gave the horse food that was mixed with alcohol. This led to the horse appearing slightly intoxicated, and apparently the physicians believed that this allowed the horse to produce a compound against being intoxicated. They had patients with the alcohol habit, they called it back then, which today we call alcohol use disorder. The physicians took this anti-alcohol serum from horses and treated their patients with it. Now, they cited 57 cases in which 36 cases were successful in helping reduce the alcohol habit, they called it. Now, 25% of the cases, though, resulted in physical defects. Now, although the physicians did not specify what these physical defects were, it sounds somewhat alarming, doesn't it? Many other physicians disclaimed this treatment and said that if if it appeared to work, 
then it was actually just a placebo effect. The three physicians, Sepelier, Thebalt, and Broca, were quite embarrassed from the scrutiny and failure of their supposed anti-alcohol serum. Needless to say, this serum did not continue to be used as a treatment for alcohol use disorder in 1900. It's well to think about what medicine was like 120 years ago, how physicians approached science and medicine. Today, it seems so intricate and finessed. But back then, it was, let's have a horse drink alcohol and take their serum and give it to humans. But hey, those trials and tribulations from back then led us to where we are today in science and medicine. Now, how about we get into the core takeaways of today's episode, all about the neuroscience of embarrassment. Embarrassment is a complex emotion that we believe results in going against social norms and against social etiquette, with an audience to witness that act. Embarrassment is thought to be related to feelings of shame, awkwardness, and feelings of inadequacy. We study embarrassment because it can be a component to social anxiety, and embarrassment may prevent people from having an enjoyable time may prevent a healthy social life and could deter people from doing activities like exercising in public or may deter people from seeking help for conditions like addiction or mood disorders. There is a phenomenon called vicarious embarrassment where we may feel the embarrassment for other people. People who experience vicarious embarrassment tend to score higher for trait empathy. Now, many brain regions seem to be involved in feeling embarrassed, and that includes the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. I also talk about blushing and how that is the blood vessels responding to our stress response. They dilate, sending a flushed appearance to our cheeks. I get into some relatable stories and advice on how we can manage and cope with embarrassment for young children and even as adults today. So how about we get into those scientific details now? Embarrassment is a complex emotion which is unlike the primary emotions, such as fear, disgust, happiness, sadness. Primary emotions, like fear, are more innate, meaning not necessarily learned, but we are born with knowing these emotions. We are born to fear things and we are born to like things, and this is done in order to ensure our survival. Like, we are programmed to feel happy when we eat sweet things because sweetness signifies calories, when we need calories to survive. So our brain makes us feel happy to reinforce that behavior of eating sweet things. In the opposite, we tend to be scared of creatures that have elongated face shapes, as opposed to a round face shape, which signifies cuteness and a need to care for that that human or creature. And I go into the details of that in in the episode entitled The Neuroscience of Cute to Monstrous in episode 98, if that interests you. But in contrast to these primary emotions like fear and happiness, complex social emotions like guilt, shame, and embarrassment are viewed as complex because they can happen in response to social constructs, norms, and etiquette. Now these are learned things. So the emotion of embarrassment is very dependent on social norms and the environments in which one lives. For example, what may be embarrassing in one culture or society may not be in another. Can we think of some? Perhaps eating loudly, spitting on the street, or wearing shoes indoors are seen differently in various cultures or parts of the world. In some instances, these events may be appropriate, 
and in others not so much. The emotion of embarrassment begins to be observed around the age of two to four years when a child begins to become more self-aware, when the child is around more people like in school settings and when they begin to observe social norms. At this point, it is completely normal for a young child to not know how to handle the feeling of embarrassment as they begin to learn and navigate what social norms are. They may run away, they may cry, they may feel scared when they realize that they have done something that appears wrong and that appears against the norm. And I've been pondering from a neuroscientist perspective, how can we help children navigate this new complex emotion of embarrassment? Because embarrassment has been coined as social pain. So it can actually feel like an emotional pain. And even for us today as adults, how can we better manage feelings of embarrassment? Because we all have moments of embarrassing things. So I'm going to get into that as I go through the individual studies, because I think the studies will help us understand the why and the how of this emotion. And that will provide a nice foundation to now build upon the what and how we can cope with embarrassment. I think that understanding this emotion in itself can be useful for us in managing it for ourselves or for young children. So let's get into the studies, shall we? So firstly, why might we want to talk or study embarrassment? I think, firstly, that this emotion is interesting and something that we can all relate to. But even more so, embarrassment can be a driving reason for why individuals may not live their healthiest lives. For example, Corneva in the journal Personality and Individual Differences in 1998 wrote the fourth most common barrier to individuals living with obesity to exercise was embarrassment, that they were concerned about how they would look exercising, embarrassed that they would do the, the exercises incorrectly, that they were embarrassed that they may sweat too much, that people would look at them while they're exercising, etc. Baxter in 2016 in the journal Addictive Behavior reports identifies that stigma and embarrassment are a large hurdle for people battling with addiction to seek help. So clearly embarrassment is an emotion that can deter us from seeking the health-promoting activities that we may need. Children trying to navigate a brand new social world to them may struggle perhaps and can be helped along the process of learning if we as adults put effort into learning this emotion too. So let's talk a bit more about embarrassment. In 2016, Bastin and colleagues performed a systematic review on the neurobiology of us feeling shame, guilt, and embarrassment. I found this review really interesting because I think it can start the conversation of how we can relate to these emotions. So first, let's talk about the differences between guilt and embarrassment. With guilt, the focus is on the do. For example, I did something wrong. This emotion often occurs in the absence of an audience. Embarrassment, on the other hand, is thought to be a dimension of shame. Compared to guilt, embarrassment appears to be associated with a more sudden and accidental violation of social conventions, with concern of someone's reputation or self-image. So then we can imagine that as a child increasingly becomes placed in more public or audience situations, like in a classroom full of students, the prevalence of feeling embarrassment may rise, especially as a child is learning what is a social norm and what is not as a child develops their self-image. This also led me to think of social media. On social media, we have a large audience of viewers, but we have the capability to carefully curate what this audience sees. But how about in instances of when we can't control what the audience sees? For example, let's imagine someone posting a comment that could negatively influence our self-image. That can result in many emotions, one of which is embarrassment. 
And the fact that a large audience sees this is why it might elicit such strong emotions. It is because it is invoking the emotion of embarrassment in addition to other potential emotions like fear and anger. This is one of the reasons why having a large and important presence on social media can be very difficult for people because they are putting themselves and their reputation out there for all of the public to see, to be potentially ridiculed in the eyes of many people. And that can be really difficult to handle. So before we can get into more how to cope with embarrassment, let's try to understand this emotion just a little bit more. Modigliani, in the year 1968, in the journal JSTOR, had recruited 168 young men and wanted to understand what personality traits correlated with one's embarrassability or how easily one gets embarrassed. So they asked the men several questions to learn about their self-esteem, their empathy, and their anxiety. They noted that the personality trait that correlated the most with how easily one embarrasses was their feeling of inadequacy. If the men tended to embarrass more easily, then they scored higher for feelings of feeling inadequate. This, for example, could manifest as if they felt their clothing wasn't nice, if they felt they didn't make enough money, they felt they weren't funny or charming, if they felt they weren't good looking, if they felt inadequate in some facet of their life, then they tended to embarrass more easily with stronger emotions of shame associated with that embarrassment. The scientists noted a moderate correlation of embarrassability with anxiety and self-esteem and no significant association with their level of empathy for others. So this study speaks to the fact that perhaps one might embarrass easily if they feel that they are inadequate in other people's eyes, if they are sensitive to ridicule by others. This makes sense as the emotion of embarrassment is linked to two social constructs and how others may perceive us. So how might we overcome that? Well, it might be easier said than done, but not caring about what other people think. If we want to go to the gym and work out, but fear what others might think of us, so what? Go to the gym, put on a cute workout outfit that makes us feel good, listen to our favorite music, and you do you. Who cares what other people think, right? If we feel this way, perhaps we can also question if the social constructs we have in our head are accurate. Do people actually hold us to these so-called standards of looking a certain way while we exercise? Chances are not. It is likely that we make it out to be big, a bigger deal in our head than it actually is in reality. So my first offering is for us to question why and if we should care about what other people think of us in this situation, particularly if this embarrassing emotion is preventing us from doing health-promoting activities like exercising. Do you feel like in certain situations you may embarrass more easily and then versus other situations or like in front of particular people but not others? I think that the defining factor could be because we don't care what a particular group thinks of us. If we don't care what that group thinks, then we may be less likely to embarrass. Whereas we may be shy or embarrassed easily in front of a particular group or a certain person, and that could be because we care a great deal about what that group or what that person thinks of us. Like, have you ever wanted to perform something like play an instrument, do a comedy act, perform a dance, give a talk, and would prefer your family or friends to not be in the audience? Perhaps because we know we have to see our family and friends regularly. Perhaps we care what they think of us. We don't necessarily want their opinion of us to change should we do something embarrassing. Whereas maybe we don't care as much about a group of strangers. 
So then therefore, maybe we can curate our audience. Perhaps we include people in the audience that we don't necessarily care as much about their opinion, and therefore maybe we'll have better confidence in performing our act. I also pondered if a child was experiencing embarrassment and wasn't sure how to cope with it, how an adult might help, help them manage that emotion. Perhaps explaining to them that it is okay to feel this way. To explain to the child that I'm sure no one actually cares about what just happened. To explain to the child that we love them. They are smart and capable. Because embarrassment is due to a fear that our self-image or reputation has been harmed. So confirming to someone that they are strong and smart and capable, and this incident doesn't define them, could be helpful. Perhaps sharing an embarrassing story of our own with them can help them feel not alone. I remember once I was in a classroom with 9 to 10 year old students helping teach about heart health. And one of the young girls accidentally ripped her page quite loudly in the classroom and she started to blush and cry. And I came over to her and I pointed out to her that my page had ripped earlier too. And I had just taped it back together. And I showed her. So then I brought her the tape and I showed her how to fix it. And she felt much better after that. So maybe sometimes sharing our similar experiences and walking the child through how to feel better and how to cope with it could be very helpful. It's so interesting, when I looked into clinical studies on the neuroscience of embarrassment, the most common phenomenon studied was vicarious embarrassment. This means that we feel embarrassed for someone else, that we witness something that someone else is going through and we feel their embarrassment. So imagine the following anecdotal situation. You are attending a conference, while sitting in a room full of people, you observe the presenter walking down the aisle with toilet paper clinging to the waistband of their pants. They continue to walk up to the podium completely unaware of the situation. The toilet paper is still seen swaying from the waistband as they begin their talk. So many of you listening right now are probably like, oh my god, no, stop. I don't want to hear any more. This is too embarrassing, too cringy. Did you feel that vicarious embarrassment when I told this story, or did you feel nothing? So let's talk about this vicarious embarrassment a little bit more. Did you know that there are four types of embarrassing scenarios? The first one is unintentional and unaware. This, for example, would be someone walking around with their zipper undone. They did not mean to do this and are unaware of the situation. Just like the example anecdote I gave earlier with the toilet paper, that's unintentional and unaware. The second type of embarrassing scenario is unintentional, but aware, like someone tripping and falling. They didn't mean to do it, but they definitely know they did it. Then there is intentional and unaware, like someone who is intentionally doing something, but unaware of how embarrassing it may be, like someone extensively pra praising themselves, or perhaps someone wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm sexy, and legitimately thinking they are sexy and not meant as a joke. Lastly, the fourth type of embarrassment is intentional aware. This is often seen in stand-up comedians where they are intentionally doing a bit that is perhaps self-deprecating or awkward, and they're doing that to incite laughter. Okay, so now that we've talked about the four types of embarrassing scenarios, how about I share an embarrassing story of my own? I was in university at this time. So picture me being, you know, younger, an undergrad student, textbooks in my hand. I was studying nutrition at the time. And I'd gone to university center, and I was hungry, and I bought myself a salad. And I remember it was a Cobb salad. 
and I remember that there was a hard-boiled egg in particular in this salad. I chose to wear flip-flops for sandals this day, and it had been raining earlier in the morning, so I know this was a a bad decision. Don't judge me. Yes, it was raining, and yes, I decided to wear flip-flops. So to leave the building to go outside, I had to walk up a set of cement stairs. As I walked up the stairs to exit the building, my flip-flop got stuck. And yes, I tripped. Splayed out on the ground, sandals flying, salad flying, the lid off of my salad flew off, salad everywhere. A guy had seen this happen, and he decides to awkwardly help me. He tries to help me, and in one hand, he's got my flip-flop sandal, and in the other hand, he picks up my sad little hard-boiled egg that was sitting on the cement, and he has my hard-boiled egg in between his thumb and his index and middle finger, as though he's presenting me with something, and he shows it to me and says, here, with a pitied look on his face. It was the most awkward situation, I think, that I had experienced. Very nice guy to pick up my soggy, hard-boiled egg from the cement. But that is an example of unintentional, but definitely aware embarrassment. A common story I've heard a few times from my friends actually recently is that they've ordered an Uber or a Lyft. A car pulls up, they get in the back seat, only to realize that the vehicle is not their Lyft but some random person with a very similar car that just happens to pull up around the same time. And then they have to respond in that situation of getting in the wrong car by either apologizing, running out, laughing, whatever it may be. So through these funny, embarrassing stories, did you at any point experience feelings of cringe, unease, amusement? Some of us might feel it stronger than others. Some of us might get embarrassed more easily than others. So let's dive into the psychology and neuroscience behind that. Kroc in the journal PLOS One in 2011 conducted a study on vicarious embarrassment. Miller previously had hypothesized that maintaining face in social interactions is of concern to us, and so envisioning ourselves in the place of an embarrassed other might cause us to suffer, suffer empathic embarrassment. So to study the neurobiology of embarrassment, we use fMRI, or functional magnetic resonance imaging, to measure the recruitment of different brain regions while people feel certain emotions, like embarrassment. Scientists have noted that through these studies, particular brain regions are involved in us feeling embarrassed, such as the anterior insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. These seem to be involved in the compassionate feeling of pain, like feeling empathy for someone who is feeling embarrassed. These brain regions are considered higher-order brain regions in the cerebral cortex. Now, these do take longer to develop and mature, and thus helps to explain why children may take longer to cope with and learn these complex social emotions. More recently, an fMRI study extended these findings and demonstrated that compassion for both physical injury and social pain, like embarrassment, for other people are processed in the anterior insula as well. So in this study by Cratch and colleagues in 2011 in the journal PLOS One, the scientists had recruited over 600 men and women. They were all shown 15 different vignettes of embarrassing scenarios. Scenarios where the individual may be unaware of the situation, like their zipper being undone while giving a talk, or aware of the situation, like slipping in the mud or stumbling during a speech. The participants were also asked to fill out a questionnaire to determine their level of empathy. The scientists postulated that if we are empathic or have great empathy for others, we may be more inclined to experience vicarious embarrassment. So before I go into the results, let's think, 
Do you think you are very empathic? Do you feel vicarious embarrassment easily? Let's go through some of the questions on the scale to see how we score for empathy. So how would you respond to these? One, if I see a good movie, I can easily feel like the principal actor. Two, seeing people cry upsets me. Three, if someone wins money in a TV quiz, I often imagine how I would feel in their place. Four, I can easily relive the feelings of characters in a novel. Five, I have the tendency to put myself in my friend's position if they have problems. Six, if I see a very elderly person, I often ask myself how I would feel in their place. Seven, movies about war and killing upset me. Eight, other people have great influence on my mood. Nine, I can feel people's joy and sadness very easily. If we agree or relate to some of these statements, say yes, I feel like that holds true for me, then we might tend toward having more empathy. So what the scientists speculated here is that individuals with higher trait empathy may experience vicarious embarrassment for others more often. Then they wanted to understand the neurobiology behind that. Like, why do certain individuals feel this way? What determines that? Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, they show that the anterior cingulate cortex and the left anterior insula, those two cortical structures typically involved in vicarious feelings of others' pain, are also strongly implicated in experiencing the social pain for others during embarrassment. Importantly, the activity in this anterior cingulate cortex and the left anterior insula positively correlated with individuals' differences in trait empathy. So the scientists concluded that empathy is a fundamental prerequisite for vicarious embarrassment experiences. How about another study? In 2015, in the journal NeuroImage, Belchers and colleagues conducted a study on vicarious embarrassment while participants watched reality TV. The scientists investigated neural activation patterns in response to video clips from the reality TV show. So they recruited 60 participants and had them view clips of embarrassing moments while undergoing functional magnetic resonance imaging of their brain. Now, participants feeling high levels of vicarious embarrassment had a higher activation in the middle temporal gyrus and the supramarginal gyrus, the right inferior frontal gyrus and the gyrus rectus. Functional connectivity analyses confirmed increased connectivity of these regions with the anterior cingulate of the brain. So you might be wondering, okay, Stephanie, what does this all mean? Okay, we know certain brain regions are involved in embarrassment and vicarious embarrassment and empathy. What does this translate to the real world? Well, individuals with greater activity in these brain regions have more empathy and vicarious embarrassment, it it appears. But what determines how these brain regions function? Ah, see, that's still a question that we as neuroscientists are trying to find out. We don't have the full answer to that. Differences in brain region activity could be due to genetics. It could be a result of neuroplasticity and our brain forming connections based on our life experience. Like, did we have a lot of examples in our life or opportunities to experience empathy? Did we notice that other people in our life were very empathic? And did that influence our brain to have more connectivity and neuroplasticity in those regions too? The activity of a brain region could also be related to injury as well. For example, if someone had a stroke or an injury, like a sports injury or from a car accident, that impacted that particular part of their brain, it is possible that the individual's ability to feel empathy could be impacted too. Whether that be more or less depends on the injury. 
Now, related to the feeling of embarrassment is the phenomenon of blushing. Many of us have questioned, what is the evolutionary purpose of blushing? Why do humans blush? Darwin called blushing the most peculiar and human of all expressions. Its purpose still to this day remains unclear, but it likely reflects the social transmission of a physiological cue that indicates discomfort. A way for us to say, hey, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. It is believed that when we are stressed, our body temperature rises. This has been coined stress-induced hyperthermia. Our adrenaline levels may rise. This can cause dilation or expansion of some of our blood vessels in our skin. This happens so that heat can escape more easily to compensate for this heat response so that the heat can escape from those blood vessels. Now, because the blood vessels in our cheeks are quite wide and large, and the skin of our cheeks is thinner than the rest of our body, it is easy to see the redness in the cheeks in particular during this stress response. Some people may also experience blushing or flushing on the chest, where the skin is thinner there as well. Mikado in the journal Current Biology in 2018 conducted a study to understand stress hyperthermia, and it is thought that when we are stressed, our body temperature may rise, we may sweat, and our skin may flush. And why does the skin flush? Well, they noted through their mouse studies that in particular, brain regions regulate the stress-induced heat response, and this is the dorsal hypothalamic area neurons that innervate the raphe pallidus nucleus. So now we have a neurobiological understanding as to what causes stress-induced hyperthermia. Now, what are some treatments or ways to reduce blushing? Well, Drummond in 2013 investigated if an anti-inflammatory agent, ibuprofen, also known as Advil, which can block prostaglandin formation, if that was applied topically to a small area of the cheek of 16 participants, the fear of blushing, and in another 14 without this fear. Changes in skin blood flow were monitored at the ibuprofen-treated site and at a mirror image control site where the participants sang to induce embarrassment and blushing and during aerobic exercise to induce flushing. Interestingly, applying this ibuprofen ointment to the skin inhibited the increase in cheek blood flow in both the groups during both of the tasks. Now, not that we should be applying this anti-inflammatory cream to our face if we struggle with blushing, but it might be something to consider discussing with a physician if blushing is something that really concerns you. More so, what the study points out is that prostaglandins may be a component and reason for how and why we blush when we're embarrassed, and it explains the biology of it. To be honest, I think blushing is endearing and nothing to be shy about. To date, there aren't sufficient treatments to help reduce blushing other than helping individuals cope with the stress itself. But perhaps just understanding of this emotion can help us feel empowered and more comfortable with our own emotions, yeah? So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, the neuroscience and psychology of embarrassment. Embarrassment is an emotion that is a result of us breaking the rules of normal social constructs. So we may feel social pain in fear of our self-image being damaged in front of an audience. This can happen as children as we learn to navigate the world and what is social etiquette. This can happen with, with us as being adults, of course, and can happen in audiences like on social media where we have a large viewership. And of course, happens in the real world too. So what do we know about this emotion of embarrassment? Well, if we have a higher score of embarrassability, then we may tend to have feelings of inadequacy and a lower self-esteem. We may care a lot about what other people witnessing think of us. 
If we tend to feel vicarious embarrassment for others, we may score higher for trait empathy. We understand that certain brain regions are involved in feeling social and emotional pain, such as the insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. Now, how might we cope with embarrassment? For a child, understanding and being patient with them as they navigate this new social world is important. Letting them know that it is okay to feel this way. Helping them to feel safe and loved and letting them know that they are smart and capable. At showing them that it is okay to make mistakes, sharing our own experiences. We can also try to shift our perspective and put less focus on what other people think of us and to focus on what we enjoy and what we love and our goals. Like if we are embarrassed to work out at a gym in front of other people, who cares? Let's just go and do it anyway because we want to work out, because we want to live the healthy life that we want to live. I think putting focus on our self-confidence and our self-esteem can be very useful in this context too because our self-esteem and our self-confidence is very much tied with embarrassment because embarrassment happens as a result of us fearing that our self-image might be harmed. But if we have really good self-confidence and self-esteem, perhaps I can create a good foundation in reducing our self-embarrassment. And I have episodes, if you scroll back, all about the neuroscience of self-confidence if you want to go back and give that one a listen. I hope that this episode was interesting for all of you. If you want to buy me a coffee to say thank you for the episode, you can do so via some of the links in the description box below. If you want to see some of the studies and papers that I cite in each episode, you can follow me on social media to see some of those references. I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks, and I look forward to meeting you back here for another episode in two weeks' time. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.